the reality of marriage, part two. We established this, this whole blended family and any kind of marriage creates a relational nightmare and discussed how we were gonna get through that. And the one place that it simplifies is just at the husband and wife. When we see that relational mess coming out of the marriage, then what we have to double down on is that relationship to strengthen that. And there's one thing, I mean, if, if you ask Donna what would be the key to us lasting 30 years in marriage, it was because we had each other's back. No matter what, we had each other's back. And so that whatever, whatever came at us, we wouldn't let it split us apart, even when it was our own kids. We, we still didn't let it split us apart. And I remember on multiple occasions, we'd just look at each other and say, it's me and you against the world. That's the way we felt. And that's a lot of times the way you will feel, but there's comfort there in knowing that you and your, your wife have that kind of relationship. So we summarized it just real quick, the, the marriage, the relational mess, then the godly marriage, we're gonna double down on, on marriage, build that relationship stronger because we know that the man and the woman are needed to complete each other and the, the man has certain attributes and the woman has certain attributes and to, together bound by God, they're gonna be a force. And then we use that marriage relationship, the, the things that we went back and learned about to help us to be able to understand God more because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And we know ultimately that there's bigger pictures constantly that God's putting out there for us and that the ultimate picture of marriage is to foreshadow the coming of Christ for his church, to be married to his church. And then this is the model marriage. Even though we're not gonna be able to attain it, it helps to be able to see, hey, okay, this is how it was supposed to work. And then even to be amazed that that's how it was supposed to work. And in a perfect world, all of it would have worked perfect and there wouldn't be this relational mess. It would all be just bliss. Okay, and then we recognize that, the, that things changed drastically after the fall and that now we're a fallen people living in a fallen world under the influence of a powerful enemy. Okay, so that's a lot to contend with. And then in light of that, then you would expect that things are gonna to be tough. You'd expect life is gonna to be tough. And you'd also expect that marriage is gonna to be tough. Now we're gonna talk about how this, if we're gonna double down on the marriage, then we're gonna to have to have the man as the leader that's gonna be the key to making that, that godly marriage. There was a, I heard this one guy say that men are like dogs and women are like cats. And how do you make a dog happy? You feed it, you praise it, you play with it. Okay. Now, how do you make a cat happy? Nobody really knows. <laughs> and for sure, whatever did last time isn't going to work next time. Okay. But, but seriously, you look at it that we, the first thing we have to do is accept that man is responsible. It's all your fault. Just live there and it'll start to move you in the right direction. And I feel like that it's, it's my job in this talk to slap you in the face with it 
so that you step back and then go, wait, it's not. And then you could start arguing all your different things. And as soon as you start to argue against it and push back on that it's all your fault, you've lost the argument. Because the first thing you have to do is accept the responsibility for it. And when you look, it's really not a big surprise and it's really not a big stretch if you really will open up and look at it realistically. Men are not only the problem in marriage and relationships, men are the problem in the world, okay? I'll tell you a story about uh, Francis Chan said he went over to Ethiopia and they walked to a street and as far as he could see, there was these huts. And each of the huts was about the size uh, to have a bed in it. And then and outside each of those huts, you'd have these women looking to do business, okay? And then you would have men walking up and down the streets, with crowds of men walking up and down the streets trying to decide who they're gonna do business with, looking at it like a kid in a candy store, okay? And so you look at that and say, well, that, is it really all man's fault? Well, think about that for sure. For sure these women didn't come under the nurturing care of these men. A lot of those women are there as sex slaves and against their will. That's on the man. That the man is the one who designed this district, this street that's gonna be the prostitute street. And then the man is there making the market. What part of it is not the man's fault? I'll give you another one. When years ago, we had this Bible study at church with, it was going to be a, for the men and women, both were going to go through it at the same time on First and Second Timothy. And then the first Wednesday night comes and 500 women show up for this Bible study and 200 men. I mean, it, that should be a thousand men and 500 women. So now you think, just, just imagine this, that there was 500 women, 200 men. So you had 300 women who went to this Bible study and their husbands at home. Okay, I'm talking in generalities, but okay, their husbands at home. And then you think, well, maybe he was home keeping the kids. No, no, that wasn't it. Maybe they're home watching TV. Maybe there's a show on they wanted to watch. Maybe they took advantage to be able to work a couple more hours. But no matter what, is that being the spiritual leader of your family where you're going to do anything else and let your wife and kids go to church and you not? But that's where it is. And I don't think my church is unique. I think that, that you would see the same thing in your church that the women participation is much greater than it is with the men. You have to eventually be able to stand up to men like we are here and say, hey, wake up, it's your fault. Don't expect that things to get better at church. Don't expect things to get better with the world. Don't expect things to get better with your marriage when you're not gonna step up and take full responsibility for it. Do that and you're moving in the right direction. Fight against that and you're moving in the wrong direction. Verses here, Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul starts out in Ephesians talking on, on marriage, and he starts out with this umbrella over 
the rest of everything else he writes, that there should be this mutual submission. Because that's what we're looking for. How can, how can we as men now uh, approach our walk with Christ, our godliness, so that we'll be a strong cornerstone to build a godly marriage that now can cope with this relational mess? It was like there's, some of you might be too young, but there's a, there used to be a cartoon called Chip and Dale. Not, not the Chip and Dale male strippers, the, but Chip and Dale. And they're two little chipmunks that were constantly with each other. When they would go somewhere, then one would say, oh no, you go into the, you, walking into the house, you go first. And the other one would say, oh no, no, you first. And he said, no, I insist you first. And then the other one would say, no, absolutely, you first. Well, see, that's mutual submission. See, you're so much more concerned about the other person than you are about yourself. That's what, that's what you're looking for. And this is why you got to be careful, guys, when you're thinking about getting married, you got to choose well. It's the only place in this whole process where you get to impact what's going to happen down the road. If you, if you miss the boat on choosing well and you don't choose a godly woman, you don't see that she fell through the grid and you just went by looks or fun or whatever else, then you've missed your opportunity and your life is going to be much harder to deal with, especially if she's not a Christian. 522. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay. If you talk to most women and they read this verse, it says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then they'll say, well, if my husband was like the Lord, I wouldn't mind submitting to him. You know, if he was like, just like Jesus, but what did we already learn? She's going to have a problem with it. It's part of the curse that she's living under. It doesn't matter if Jesus was her husband, she would have a problem with it. 523. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. See, notice this. Man is the head. Christ is the head. I don't think anybody would argue with Christ is the head. But this is not a command. It's just a statement of fact. However you want to slice it up, the husband is the head. It's just like we talked about that in, in the curse, the, the, but the man's going to rule over her. The man is the ruler. And you can't opt out of that. That's part of your curse. You have to be the ruler. Now it's just a matter of whether you're going to be a good ruler or a bad ruler. But you are the ruler. You, you won't escape that. So now that when you think about that, uh, the husband being the head, what does that mean? What does that look like? Is it going to be that he's going to lord it over them? Look at this, Mark ten forty two. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You don't want to puff up like the Gentiles and say, yeah, I'm the boss. You know, and you don't want to end up having to tell the woman, look, the Bible says 
I'm the head and you're, you're to submit. If you ever have to do that, you've lost. You, you're not gonna win that. So, what, because what, what you're doing, it's just like if, you, if you're the boss. If you're the boss at, at work and then you're trying to get somebody to do something, I need this, do it, and they got, you got some pushback and y'all are having a conversation and then finally you say, hey look, I'm the boss and this is what we're doing. Well, I mean, that's weak and pitiful. You're, you're not gonna, they know you're the boss. If you have to now start telling them you're the boss, that you've lost it. If you have to start telling your wife, you're the, you're the ruler, you're the leader, you've lost it. You're not doing a very good job of leading. And that's what Jesus is saying. What you need to be is a servant leader. That word lorded over them is like a master-slave relationship. And I don't think it's going to go over too well with your wife if you're talking about being the master and her the slave. You know, the, or, or to subjugate somebody. They're your subject. That's not the relationship that Jesus is saying. He's saying with you, you need to be a servant. And if you want to be first, then be a slave to all. Take the very bottom position. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's even Jesus. He is deserving of everything, right? He, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And there's Jesus is the whole reason for everything. He didn't come to be served. So why should you think you should be served? He came to be a ransom. Are you willing to die for your wife? We won't even die to ourselves. Ephesians 5.24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, so now as he's talking to the wives, he's given them an example. The church submits to Christ. You wives should also submit to your husbands and everything, okay? So again, there's not much pushback that the church submits to Christ, and now he's implying it again. Okay, now you should submit to your husband. So they have a, a pattern to look at, to follow. But you can't worry about her. You can't worry about her role in this. She has to get there on her own. That's between her and God. God has to change her heart. God has to get her there. You, but you have to continue to be the leader. You're just going to have to figure out how to lead with somebody who's pushing back against you. But again, that's why you want to choose well on the front end. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Yes, is, is that you? To make her holy, washing her with the water of the word, to present her as a radiant church without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish, and holy and blameless. Is that the way that you look at your relationship with your wife? Is that what you're trying to do? Because there's going to come a day when you're going to have to lift her up and say, okay, Lord, here's what I've been able to accomplish with her. And you want these to be things that describe that. But is, is that what you're actually accomplishing? Or are you making her cold, bitter, resentful? Is that what you're doing? And is that what you're going to have to lift up? That's the thing 
You, you're, we're wanting to live for greater purposes. That's what you'll notice in all this that has to do with a godly man being the cornerstone of a godly marriage is there's a, a perspective upward, okay, and not being pulled down to the things of this world. You need to rise above what, what's happening just in your day-to-day -day conflicts and things like that and be looking for a, a greater purpose. Live for a greater purpose. Okay, rise above. First Peter 3, 7. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Yeah, that word weaker, that's not talking about muscle again, you know, so guys don't start getting too full of yourself. Hey, I'm stronger than you. This is talking about fragile like fine china or like crystal. I know if we ever use our crystal, then I get ready to put it in the dishwasher and Donna's like, no, 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 no. We, we wash those by hand, right? Extra care, extra because they're fragile. And that's the way that we need to be. That's the way we need to be treating our wives. Is that what we're doing or are we throwing them in the dishwasher? You think about how, how can, you, how can you do this? Without God, you can't. You can't do these things without God. And without you, God won't. So if you won't make the commitment, if this is not who you are, this is not what you're about, God's going to step back and, and let you crash and burn. But when you go that direction, then God's going to come along with you. And now you have the ability to do it, right? God's the God of the impossible. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. This is sort of the balance to 1 Peter 3.7. Yes, you need to treat her like she's fragile in the weaker vessel. But now, don't forget what Paul's saying here. You are the head. Don't be passive too. And don't just lay back and do nothing and not lead. It's like Mark was talking about, the, this idea of balance is in there. Ephesians 5, 28, 29. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. You noticing a theme here with Paul? Husbands, you got to love your wife. Husbands, love. Husbands, love. Wonder why he keeps going over that. Might be that we're not very good at that. And he wants to make us aware we have to love. And so now he gets to this place and says, okay, you, you need to love your wives. And if you're confused what that looks like, just love her like you do yourself. It'll look a lot like love. Because we take care of ourselves. When we're hungry, we get something to eat. When we're thirsty, we get something to drink. If we want to go fishing, we work that out perfectly. If we want to go play golf, we work that out. How about for your wife? Are you just as attentive to your wife's needs as you are to yourself? Let me just say this. One of the worst mistakes that you can make to me as a man is that you shut your wife down enough and you keep beating her down to where 
you think it's the worst thing that she's arguing back at you and she's pushing back on you and she seems to be criticizing you and she seems to be attacking you and you think that's the worst thing, but it's not. It's when you shut her down and she doesn't have any more. She doesn't have anything put back on you. She's shut down. Guy Dotson, bless his soul, when we talked about this when it comes to divorce, he says he has... Uh, he says it never fails. When the men come in for divorce, then they're bawling, crying. I didn't even know what, we had a problem and things were, I just thought we, I knew we could work this out, but now it's just, and they're bawling, crying. And then he says, the women come in there, shark eyes. It's just, matter of fact, let's get this. And Why? See, they were shut down a long time ago. And they had already, this has already worked out for them, and they've already, they already left a long time ago. When your wife quits wanting to uh, push back and, and, and see you become the person you need to be, because, see, that's her role. She completes you. That's what it takes. She completes you. She's filling in some blind spots for you. You're, she's seeing things about you that you don't see about yourself. And now our defensiveness comes up, and we want to fight back. We want to defend ourselves. Really, what we should be doing is accepting that and stepping back. You know, I was just telling Destin, I said, there's so many, you end up in so many fights over nothing, and the problem is you're here and you need to be here. If you just shut your mouth, how many fights will it stop? You never should have, you never should have gotten into the fights. Ephesians 5, 30, 32. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. See, now here we are again. Now Paul's turn to take us back to Genesis, take us back to the beginning. It's beneficial for you to go back to the beginning to see how things were supposed to be. Know about the perfect design for man, the perfect design for woman, the perfect design for marriage. And then again, here, he's given us a broader goal. He's ha having us to rise above, to look up and see that there's something bigger going on here than just you having a happy marriage. It's, re it's reflecting Christ in his church, the marriage of Christ in his church one day. Ephesians 5.33 However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This one verse says more towards helping a, a marriage and having a, a happy marriage than I think libraries of books say. Again, men, love your wife. And then wives, respect your husband. Here's what's going on. Men, most of the time, are, I said women were love machines. Well, men are like respect machines. A lot of times respect means more to us than love. Most men would rather be respected than loved. You know, how many times do you see something and say, eh, he's kind of a rotten person, but I respect him as a football player, or I respect him as a coach, but he's kind of a rotten person. See? The respect is big on our list, okay? And even you'll hear men talk about their wives like that. 
man, she does a good job. She's a great cook. She keeps the house clean. And man, she runs the, a tight ship with those kids. I really respect her. And to him, he's just lifted her up here. But to her, it means nothing to her. What, what she wants is love. What she wants is love. And the man is giving her respect and she wants love. She wants you to listen to her. She wants you to have conversations with her. She wants you to, to get to know her. She wants you to recognize her value, her worth. Uh, it, it, it's relational. It's totally relational. That's what she's looking for. And then you go to the women, and again, we can't worry about trying to fix the woman. That's between her and God. Again, choose well. The wife must respect her husband. Well, the, the, the woman's coming over and just, oh, I want to talk to you and let's talk about this and I want to share and I want to talk and I want to... That's loving to her. That's big. She's lifting you up big. But to you, it doesn't mean anything. You want her to respect you. If the woman knew how to respect you, then what she would do, you're out cleaning up the garage and she goes out there and says, wow, I never knew the garage could look this good. And then here's the man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go do the attic next. <laughs> right? If she would just show him that respect, then that resonates with him. Now suppose both of them were doing what Paul says here. Uh, okay, men, you're good on the respect thing. You do that naturally. Now you have to do better at loving. Okay, women, you love well, but you need to work on the respect thing. Well, now then, what if the man starts loving the woman? Because you're the cornerstone, right? So you're going to make sure that you start loving the woman. And, and you do that by relating to her, interacting with her, uh, talking to her, sharing with her then when you do that, then she feels loved, and then guess what? She's more likely to show you the respect of submitting to you, okay? Because she feels loved. She feels safe. So she's going she's gonna to submit to you. Now you can lead. It's, it's not a manipulation. It's just the way things are, the way things are supposed to work. And if you go back to Genesis at the very beginning... It worked that way perfectly. And then we get this verse. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So now, what is Paul talking about now? If you have a wife, you should live as if you have none. What does that mean? Dumper? I need to get out of this thing? What, and Am I supposed to just live this lie that if, if uh, I'm mourning, I need to act like I'm not? If I'm happy, I need to act like I'm not? If I buy something, I act like it's not mine to keep? What is this? The goal here for Paul is to give you perspective. There's more to this than just having a wife and having a happy marriage. There's the, the goal is eternal, right? 
Because he says right here, for this world in its present form is passing away. Don't invest everything trying to make everything as perfect as you can in this physical world you're living in right now. It's not going to happen. Okay? Instead, keep your mind up here. Rise above. Keep your mind on the things above. And that's where you're going to get the strength to be able to not have to fight over every little thing. Like Destin said, how to load the dishwasher. You're going to get in a fight over that, really? And the, a, a big thing to remember here is, is think about it. In this fallen world, everybody's going to let you down. Your wife's going to let you down. So don't be surprised when that happens. Everybody's going to let you down but Jesus. And so that's why we want to keep our focus up here. This verse is the same type of verse. Do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Yeah, so see... Here's John basically doing the same thing. Hey, everything in the world, everything in the world is not from the Father. Don't love any of it. And if you go to not loving any of it, you'll be heading in the right direction. Then if you're trying to argue how come it's okay to love this and love that, and really, Jesus gives us a good um, example of this. He helps teach us on this same type of thing. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need, he did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what he was, what he was in a man. Jesus wouldn't entrust himself See, that's, that's saying the same thing. He's not going to entrust himself. What does it mean to entrust? Okay, before I entrust something to somebody, I have to trust them. If you think of entrust from a standpoint of, your, of, let's say, your kids, and you say, hey, I need to get the kids home from school. I can't go get them, so I'm going to get somebody that I trust, that I can entrust my kids to, to get them home safely. All right? You're not just going to say, oh, just anybody pick them up and take them. It doesn't matter. No, you're going to find somebody that you can entrust them with. Well, Jesus is saying he didn't entrust himself to anybody and because he knew all men. He knows what was in a man. But one thing I want to make sure that you, that, that you get a clear vision on, Jesus came to earth as a man. He's 100% God, 100% man. He never lost his deity, but he walked on the earth as a man, not as God. As soon as he would have picked up, he laid down his deity. As soon as he ever would have picked up his deity, now he's not going to be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He has to walk through this earth as a man. It's not like, oh, of course Jesus knows what's in a man. It's Jesus. He's God. No, he knows what's in a man because... He knows man. Just like you look at yourself, you know what's in a man. It's, it's not a mystery. It doesn't take supernatural power for you to know what's in a man. 
Now I want to show you this where Jesus makes this point. John 5, 19 and 20. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. See, here's Jesus. He's saying it. The Son can do nothing by Himself. So He's, he's letting you know that He, he doesn't do these, these things by Himself. He doesn't do the miracles on His own. He's not doing the miracles because He's God. He's doing miracles as a man. And then God's doing the miracles through him. Just like God will do things through you. Right now, he was doing things through Jesus. Miracles through Jesus. He's, he wasn't doing them on his, with his own power. It's, it's like when you look at it and okay, Mary comes to him and says, Hey, they're out of wine. And he goes, Hey, it's not my time, woman. Because he doesn't take orders from Mary. right? He only takes orders from God. Mary walks away. And then he changes the water into wine. Well, what happened? Because he was like, hey, it's not my time. And then God says, change the water into wine. Okay, now it's my time. But he's going to operate with what God tells him, not what Mary tells him or anybody else tells him or any other man. And to make it even, even stronger statement to this, John 5.30. By myself, I can do nothing. Pretty big admission for Jesus, right? What about you? You have to come to the place to say, by myself, I can do nothing. I'm not going to be able to fix my marriage. I'm not going to be able to do anything. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. By here, Jesus is saying, by myself, I can do nothing. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Yeah, see, we know a man, right? We know what's in a man. And you can see that these, these uncomfortable pushes happen all the time in the Bible. Look at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean out into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Trust the Lord with all your heart, all your heart. Well, now, what about, I need to have some for my wife, right? And I need to have some for my kids, and I need to have some of my heart sectioned out over here and here. But the Bible says, all your heart. Do you not trust? Well, the Bible's trying to push a relative trust here. When, when you look at trusting God, relative to that, it looks like you don't trust anything else. It might as well be zero. That's the thing. The Bible has all these radical teachings to make you feel uncomfortable. Let them do their work. It's okay. Don't try and domesticate radical teachings in the Bible. Here you can see it again. Even more dramatic from Jesus. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Yeah, this is a massive commitment Jesus is asking for. Again, when you look at your relationship with Jesus, all the other important relationships in your life look like hate. 
So again, he's trying to make a, a radical claim on your life. And what this will do is it'll expose your self-protective reflex, just like you are with your wife. When she wants to uh, make a, a radical statement against you, you have this self-protective reflex and you want to fight back against it. The Bible does the same thing. Jesus does the same thing. And you, maybe you can start there by not wanting to fight back against that. Hebrews 2.18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. You think about Jesus, Jesus as a man, and he's going through life. Every way that you suffered, Jesus suffered. The struggles with lust, the struggles with greed, the struggles with ego, the struggles with pride, Jesus felt those same struggles. Okay, he suffered under those temptations, yet never sinned. How? He stayed totally connected to God. He was totally focused on God. Right? Remember back, John 15, 5. Here's how Jesus sums this up. This would be critical in being able to keep a, a solid marriage intact. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, stay connected to me. You know, Mark talked about that earlier. You know, the, the vine and the branches and talked about the whole thing with uh, uh, grapevines and how they work, okay? It's a, this is a, a, a big picture that he's given us and he's saying, you have to remain in me. That's the only way you can make things work. And if you don't remain in me, don't forget, apart from me, you can do nothing. So see, it's making these things very clear that there's this massive, wild, radical commitment to Jesus and growing in your relationship with him and leaving the things of this world behind and not getting bogged down in the, in the petty things of your marriage where when what, what the thing that's really important in that marriage, the ultimate purpose of that marriage is reflecting Christ in his church. You see, if you keep everything up here, you won't get bogged down with your marriage and your petty things that are, that are going on with you. So there you go. Marriage creates relational mess. Then we look at the godly marriage as the key to coping with the relational mess. So we have to have this godly marriage. We see the model of it back with um, um, in, in Genesis, right? And we know ultimately that the godly marriage is pointing towards Christ in the church, okay? And now in this broken, fallen world, things are going to be extremely difficult, right? And that it's going to take a godly man who's committed to growing in his relationship with Christ in order to make that godly marriage that will then allow us to deal with the relational mess. The relational mess, remember, is in the world. It's down here, okay? And what we tend to do and what Satan's wanting to do is always pull us down into the world, into those messes, and he wants us to live there because that's where you're defeated, okay? And what Jesus, what the Bible is trying to do is say, hey, look, 
Rise above. Take a look at the things up here. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you won't worry about these things. And then guess what? You become a more godly man. You become happier in your life. And it starts to help your marriage. It starts to help your relationships. It starts to help you with your kids. Is all that going to get fixed? No, we know that. We know that. But we're not going to get bogged down with the thing. That's the things of this world. We're keeping our eyes on the big things. Just like Paul. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm here... I'm living for Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ. I'm good either way. He's where Jesus wants him to be. He's where he wants you to be. What's important? The only thing that I would say here is to just rise above the things of this world. We already talked about the the things of this world are passing away. The goal is to prepare for eternity in Jesus. That's what's going on. All this is to prepare you for the day Jesus comes back. If, you're, if your thoughts, and even in talking about this marriage, that you think, hey, this is, this is the bottom line. I'm going to have a perfect marriage. I'm going to have uh, the, present my wife blameless, and I'm going to reflect Jesus in my marriage. You've lost. That's not the way it's going to be in this world, Okay. We're, you, we're, we're striving to that. That will have an impact on us and will probably make this situation better, okay? And then we're trusting in God to come in and uh, do the impossible and, and smooth everything out to whatever extent he, he wants to, to whatever extent is going to help me grow in my relationship with Christ and help me move closer to him in heaven to get to that, hey, for me to live as Christ and to die in his game. All right, I said keep these verses in mind. John 2, 15 and 16, we, we read it once, but do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Okay, so there's, I'm, I'm summing this whole talk up in two verses. One is we don't love the world. That's a fool's errand. This is it. See, there's the world. We can be down there and look at the craziness. Just look at, imagine all the craziness going on in that city and in that world. Just the traffic would be enough. Look here. Remember I told you about this verse. Hold on to this verse. Because remember, the whole purpose of everything is to the praise of the glory of his grace which is ultimately manifested in Jesus. So then we complete the picture of that there. So we want to get away from these things. Don't get bogged down here, and it will totally bog you down. Instead, start to rise up. Start to see the things of God and start to move closer and closer to the praise of the glory of His grace. Okay? That's it. When we take a break, then we're going to come back. I'm going to let Destin give you some insight on his marriage. You've been married, what, Destin, now? Three and a half years. Wow. Okay. So it's a little bit different than me and Andy. <laughs> Let's take a break. And maybe they can't. It just so happened that Destin and I went through this study. When I talk about going through this study with um, 
other people, and I've been like a year with some people. With with Destin, it's probably two or three months that we went through it. Mm -hmm. And um, how long how long ago was that? That was before y'all even got married, we, right? So we've been married for three and a half years. I think we went through it two or three months before our engagement because we we butted up pretty close to our our wedding day. And I remember that. Uh huh. Uh huh. So. Okay. Yeah. So he he actually went through it, and now I hope with the verses that he's got, he'll be able to share this with other people that are getting ready to get married too. Mm -hmm. But anyway, let's. Uh, I'll go and pray for Destin, and we'll hear what he has to say. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for the, uh, this group. I thank you for the men who have made a commitment to be here to be able to grow in their relationship with you and especially for Destin that he's committed to come up here and uh, share his heart about marriage and what it's like three and a half years into it to give some insight to people who are thinking about getting married and maybe give us some uh, old guys a chance to think back to our roots of when, when we did get married and we just pray that you would calm his nerves, that you would uh, help him to be able to speak clearly and articulately and help him to uh, be able to say the things that are going to impact the people in this room. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'll just say before we get too far into this, uh, I remember going through this same thing, uh, this study with my now wife, my then fiance, Brianna, and even with it stretched out over a couple months, I still felt like I was drinking through a fire hose, but somehow David's been able to construct this in a way that's meaningful and still comprehensible. But if it feels like a lot, it definitely is. And I, I remember him talking to us about, you know, it's all the man's fault. Destin, it's all your fault. And that felt like a slap in the face, as it should have. But if you're, if you're not married, one thing that I just want to say right out the gate is um, it is hard. It is a learning process. It is absolutely worth it. I mean, it, it's a blast. Um, we win some days, we lose some days, but every day we do it together, and it's, it's fantastic. Um, so it, it is daunting, and I, I remember thinking that, but it is worth it. Um, speaking of daunting, I, I'm really intimidated to give this talk, you guys. I'll just be completely transparent with you. I'm not nervous. I, I'm weird. I like public speaking. I feel like I can come up here and just talk to you guys about anything. I know most of you. I feel comfortable with most of you. But the problem is I, I know that the majority of people in this room have been married a lot longer than I have, and you have much more wisdom, and you have much more experience. Um, so it's kind of weird. This feels like a, a joke on the new guy. Like, let's throw him up on stage and see what he thinks he knows, right? <laughs> Um, so this, I'm not going to say anything groundbreaking. I'm, I'm probably not going to say anything that you haven't heard before, especially if you've been married for a couple of years. But I do just want to talk to you guys. I'll, I'll just make this like a, a testimony and just talk to you about what God's been doing in my life, what God's been doing in Brianna's life, um, what he's taught me through marriage and, and things like that. Also, it is not lost on me that I'm the only thing standing between you and dinner. I know what this time slot is, and I know your stomachs are grumbling. I know you're looking at that clock. So I will try to streamline this as much as possible. I don't have slides, but I am going to go ahead and ask our volunteers to look up the verses that we're going to go through. Three and a half years of marriage. Background a little bit. My wife and I are both nurses. We started dating whenever we were uh, working at St. Thomas Rutherford. Both of us had the desire to continue our education and go to graduate school. So when we got in engaged... 
we knew that both of us wanted to continue our education, and that would mean a busy, busy, busy first couple years of marriage. She wanted to study to be a family nurse practitioner, and I wanted to study to be a certified registered nurse anesthetist. These are two very, very demanding programs. So we knew that going into it, we wanted a solid foundation. We wanted lots of tools to be able to work through conflicts, two families merging, things like that, um, because we knew that the first couple of years was going to be really, really busy. Um, so I want to talk to you guys about three principles that I think I've wrestled with the most. Lots of people ask me, what's been the best part of marriage? What's the hardest part of marriage? What's something maybe you didn't expect? But these are three principles that I have wrestled with the most, and I'll elaborate on that um, during our first couple years of marriage. The first one, good principle, prioritize your marriage. The second one, you don't have to write these down because I'm going to go back and forth and back and forth. You can if you want there. Prioritize your marriage. Second one, speak each other's love language. Good piece of advice, but I'll tell you why I struggled with that. And then the third, communicate. Three very basic principles. We walked into marriage fully armed with a background of what God intended marriage to be, how sin affected that, good, strong, you know, strong foundation uh, in the word with each other. So I felt like we had a pretty good plan going into marriage. And if there's one thing that I learned in nursing school, it's you can read a textbook and you can read about something all day long, but when you hit the floor, it is completely different. And marriage was exactly the same. Mike Tyson's got a pretty great quote. Let's see if y'all can finish it. Everyone's got a plan to get punched in the mouth. So the first couple of years of marriage, we, we got punched in the mouth. I mean, on top of being newlyweds, figuring out grad school, she was on night shift, I was on day shift. We navigated uh, changing locations, moving. We navigated the loss of family members. And then there was that tiny little thing, COVID-19. I don't know if y'all remember that, but that was also a hard thing to go through whenever you're a newlywed. So principle number one, prioritize your marriage. Excellent concept, and it is something that should be practiced. And it makes sense because no one else is going to fight for my marriage like I should fight for my marriage. My work's not going to fight for my marriage. My friends aren't even going to fight for my marriage like I should fight for my marriage. I should. The reality is that investing time in fighting for that marriage means that that time now has to come from somewhere else. There's still 24 hours in the day. I didn't just get married and magically there's four extra hours I can put into marriage. I have to pull that from something else to put that into something. Let me give you a practical example. This is a completely made-up story. It has no reflection on anyone here. Some of the characters may resemble me and my wife, but we'll just say it's made up. It's football season. It's the playoffs. Titans look good this year. Derrick Henry is back. This is the first game that Derrick Henry is back. I've been waiting. We've been waiting really since Derrick Henry injured his foot. All, I mean, for weeks, if not months. Sit down on the couch. Turn on the TV, crack open a nice, cold ice water, <laughs> and all of a sudden, hey, honey, yes, dear, my mom's coming into town this Friday. Can we move our regular date night? Sure. Can we do it now? Yes. Is there, can we do it a different day? No, work's really busy this week. Okay. How about this? Go ahead and get ready, because I know it's going to at least get me to halftime. And then we can go. You know it's true. Yeah. Hey, honey. Yes, dear. 
I can't find my earrings. Can you come help? I'll be up there in a minute. Hey, honey. Yes? The toilet's making a funny sound. Can you come up and fix it? Sure thing. Hey, honey. What? I love you. I love you, too. So very quickly, it's kind of a silly example, but things like that I cued in on pretty quick happen all the time. If I had something that I wanted destined to be able to do, and if that was ever threatened, then I felt like I, I wasn't being, you know, I wasn't paying enough attention to myself. So the, the reality of that is marriage reveals selfishness. And I, I know you parents are going to laugh at me whenever I say this because we don't have any kids just yet. Um, but I did not realize how selfish I was until I got married. Because I figured I should look out for Destin. Destin is the only person that's going to look out for Destin. Who's got the Romans uh, 12, 9, and 10 pulled up? Do you care to go ahead and read that? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let's go, Charlie. Everybody give Charlie a round of Oh, never mind. I thought I was coming to this, uh, the stage. Never mind. Go ahead. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent, and one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than ourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Perfect. Thank you. So, yeah. The principle is fight for your marriage. Reality is sin's going to tell you Destin needs to look out for Destin. God's word steps in and says Destin needs to look out for Brianna the way that no one else looks after Brianna and vice versa. Easy in thought, hard to carry out. Uh, principle number two, learn each other's love language and speak them. Easy. We did this in counseling. So, you know, you sit down at the little computer, you punch in, you know, what's your love language? You take this quiz and it spits out and it says, all right, Destin, yours is acts of service. And it spits out to her like, okay, yours is quality time. So I'm thinking that's easy. I'll just, you know, spend some quality time with her. She'll love me and then she'll do things around the house and it'll be great. Well, a couple months into marriage, she's not exactly responding to my quality time the way that I would like for her to. And maybe she's not doing a couple acts of service that I would like for her to. So what's going on? Well, we sit back down at the computer. We punch in the same thing, you know, stuff. Oh, I think this for that answer. And our love language has changed. Completely different. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And the reality is, we change to an extent as people. So I started thinking, well, if her love language is always going to be moving around and changing, I mean, I can't always get it right, which, spoiler alert, you can't get it right. But I do want to take a look at one thing that God's Word has to offer for that. Who's got the Ephesians 5, 1 and 2? Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of, the, of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragment offering and sacrifice to God. Perfect. Just as Christ loved us. How, how did Christ love us in that example? It was a fragrant sacrifice. Sacrificial love. If there is one thing that I have learned in three and a half years of marriage, sacrificial love trumps everything. Whatever your love language is, there, there's just something in, our, in the way that our hearts are wired. Um, and I, I think that's why the gospel always speaks to us, that whenever there is something that costs someone else something so that I can do fill in the blank, that will always speak volumes. Um, so let's, let's go back to that little silly football analogy. You know, what if instead it started off with me saying, hey, 
didn't you mention like last week that your mom was going to be coming into town sometime this week? Yes. Oh, well, why don't we go ahead and move our, our date night? Why don't we go ahead and do it tonight? Oh, well, you know, no, you wanted to see the, the game. We can move it. So, no, 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 you're more, more important than the football game. Completely different scenario. Um, I'll also say that the idea of sacrificial love, for me, I won't speak for all men, um, that can only happen and remain in focus whenever I am daily looking at Christ's sacrificial love for me. The minute that I lose sight of that, I stop doing that at home in my marriage, and things get amok. Um, So I cannot overemphasize the importance of my walk and how that has to keep me focused on sacrificial love and where where that comes from. Um, Anyway, principle number three, communicate. I don't know how many times I was told in premarital counseling and by other wiser men, like, just communicate. You know, if you're not communicating with your wife, like, have y'all talked? Are y'all talking about this? You have to communicate. I could talk to a brick wall. Uh, I've probably trapped many of you who are trying to go somewhere, and I just assaulted you with words. I apologize, but that's just how I am. Same with Brianna. She, she could make friends with an animal and just sit there and talk all day. So I was like, this isn't going to be a problem. Like, if anything, we'll over-communicate. Where, where I fall short and where I'm learning that I fall short is I have a lot of trouble communicating my emotions. She and I are a completely different species when it comes to communicating emotions. If she wants to sit down and cry about the fact that there's stray dogs in the world, that's what she's going to do. She'll just feel it, cry, and that's it. I'll, you know, watch something tragic on on television and think, man, I'm really hungry. Like, I could go for a cheeseburger right now. That's my next thought. It's completely different. Um, This this really came to a head, though, uh, when we had to go through something that was pretty pretty traumatic last year. Um, We were fresh out of of school, and without getting too in the details, we we weren't really trying to have kids, but we were just kind of trusting God's timing. Uh, And God blessed us with a pregnancy. And we were shocked, and we were reeling, and if I'm being honest, I was hoping that I would have a chance to pay back debt a little bit more than I had. So I was financially not really where I wanted to be, so it it was a shock to our systems that we were pregnant. Um, But then we got really excited, we were uh, stoked, and we told our our parents, and the day that we told our parents, uh, we started showing signs of a potential miscarriage. Um, So we went immediately to our OB, and it was this awful, dark week where it was about an 80% chance that it was going to be a a failed pregnancy and a 20% chance that it would still be a successful one. And guys, I I prayed, I fasted, I I talked to my my inner circle of prayer warriors, um, and at the end of that week, they they did confirm that we had, had miscarried. Um, and I, I just remember it was a pain that I have not had to deal with before. Um, and I know many of you have, have walked through something similar, but trying to mourn the loss of someone you never met is just weird. Um, and wrestling through Father's Day, Mother's Day, uh, the holidays where we thought we were going to be going through them um, with, with a kid, and then we weren't. It was, it was weird and uncomfortable and just sad, very, very sad. Um, and she was emotional, understandably. And I, I just remember being mad and angry um, and just 
like something inside me was eating me up. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know how to express that. I, I couldn't really talk to her, and it kind of flared up as anger. And so sometimes we'd be talking, and it would end in an argument. I'd say something hurtful, and she would kind of shut down, and then I would shut down. And we were both walking through it, but we just felt it and processed it completely different. Um, who, who's got the uh, King James Version of Ephesians? Go ahead and be coming up here. So I, what happened with me is I couldn't express it. I found out that this anger, it was destructive. And I, if I let it out, then it would be destructive towards other people. And if I kept it in, then it would also be destructive. Um, exercise turned into to self-punishment. Fasting turned into just not eating. Um, and everything just took a, a bitter turn. Um, now, I didn't know what to do with the anger. Go ahead and read the uh, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, and then if you'll also skip down and read 31, please. Yes, sir. Thank you. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Thank you. Be ye angry and sin not. And then later on, cast off anger. Be angry, but not too angry. We don't sin. But also cast off the anger. So that, that just confused Destin to no end. And so his remedy for that was stuff it inside. But see what that did to her is she now felt isolated. Instead of being emotional and showing those emotions and communicating that with her, I was a wall just a, a rock. And so she felt like she was the only one going through the miscarriage. She felt like it, was, it hadn't affected me at all. So I, I started thinking, well, where, where are examples where I know that Jesus was angry? And the first thing, I'd say the majority of us have been through a John study. The first thing that I think of is when he goes in and he flips the tables in the temple and he clears it out, he fashions the whip. Very popular example. I want to look at another example uh, in John 11. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory on this. You're probably familiar, but this is the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus has just gotten word that his friend Lazarus is sick. He knows that by the time he gets there, Lazarus will have been dead for, for several days. Um, but this is his interactions with Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, um, when, when Jesus shows up on the scene. Who's got the uh, John eleven thirty two and 35? Does anyone care to look it up? Oh, perfect. Thank you. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my, bro my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So we know from verse 35 that Jesus wept. But up a couple lines in 33 where it says, He was deeply moved in spirit. I'm reading out of the NIV deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I, I doubt he had to kind of lean over to John and say, hey, when you write this out, make sure you make a note that I'm, I'm deeply moved and troubled. I think he showed it, right? And they knew that. 
So whether it was through weeping or uh, I think some translations say groaned in the spirit. Um, but why, why was Jesus so deeply troubled? He, he was about to let, raise Lazarus from the dead. He, he knew that. So why, was he, why did he weep? And I, I remember reading that and I was like, I feel deeply troubled. I, I feel like there is something wrong and I, I can't pinpoint it. But whatever Jesus was feeling there, that, that's what I'm feeling. Like That's what's going on. And I, I think Jesus was so upset because he was looking at the consequences of death and sin right in the face. And this wasn't just about Lazarus. This was the fact that Mary and Martha and the Jews around them were having to experience the fall and the ramifications of the fall. Even though he knew that Lazarus was going to come back, he knew that this was a deeper issue. So what does that mean for me, my anger? How does that mean that I handle it? Well, I look at how Jesus handled it. Um, and this is actually a couple passages back, but I think it shows us his mindset going into it. Who's got uh, John eleven twenty five? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Uh, you tell me, go ahead and read 26 as well. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Perfect. Thank you. I am the resurrection and the life. So keep in mind, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, died, and resurrected. And he doesn't say, I have the power of resurrection. He doesn't say that I have the secrets to life over death. He says, I am the resurrection. This is not about Lazarus. I, I am aware that there are consequences to sin and the fall. And I'm going to fix that. This resurrection is not just about Lazarus. It is about fixing the fall. And y'all, I can't tell you what this verse did for me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And there are always these, these questions that they ask. Jesus, if you had been here, then my brother would not have died. And for me, I... Our, our baby was not resurrected. In fact, I read this as, even though your baby died, even though you lost your daughter, there's a resurrection. I'm going to fix it. And then because he went to the cross, I'll hold her again one day. Whew. Sorry, I thought I'd get through this. But because Jesus sees that there's a problem, he died and there's a resurrection, and he looked at the cross and he said, this is what sin has done, but this is what I'm going to do. That is how I respond. And y'all, when I, when I found that uh, passage, that just melted the anger. Um, and looking at the cross, that is the best way I can deal with my emotions. So I'll, I'll be honest, I... I have had little to no success in feeling something and immediately interpreting it and responding. Um, but now my, my grid, my framework is I feel something. And I, I typically have to sit down and just process and just talk it out with God. 
I, I don't know what I'm feeling. I, I guess I'm angry. I'm upset. Maybe at you. Maybe it's at sin. Um, but this is what I feel, and I, I don't know what to do with it. And just being honest and raw with God. And then taking that to my wife. And if you don't know where to, how to communicate with your wife, starting with I'm sorry is usually a pretty safe bet. That's another little tidbit for you. So I, I, but I did have to do this. I had to go to my wife and say, listen, I'm sorry. I have not been emotionally available. I've not had any kind of way to interpret what's going on. I never thought that I would have to deal with losing a kid and walking through a miscarriage. This is uncharted territory for me, but I want you to know I'm here and I'm mad. I'm mad that we have to live in a world where this is even something that we walk through. I'm feeling this with you and I'm right by your side. And that, that is a much better way to communicate my emotions rather than just getting angry, keeping it in and shutting down. So I'm gonna go back real quick. I know I'm going a little bit over, but if I were to hit those three things again, Prioritize your marriage. I would add Destin's asterisk to that and say, get ready to realize how selfish you are. Combat it with the gospel. And we saw that in Romans and in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Um, the, the piece of advice, speak each other's love language. Learn to sacrifice. I would say, learn to sacrifice yourself in the same way that Christ gave himself up for the church. And we saw that in Ephesians 5. And that doesn't have to be anything heroic. Small things like, hey, I know you're really busy this week. Let me take care of dinner. Um, I know you've really been wanting to go out with your girlfriends. I'll stick around the house and clean things up. Why don't you go out and, and go shopping? Small little things like that. Anything that's, I will do blank so that you can do blank. And then the third thing, communicating. I would say, for me, learning to communicate my emotions. Get angry at sin and how it has wrecked God's original design. Learn to sort through your emotions with God, then communicating them to my wife. Um, so that's my quick little three-step grid. We all have a plan now, so let's go get punched in the mouth. But seriously, thank you all for your time and, and for listening. Um, hopefully some of it maybe uh, stood out. Mm-hmm.